Harvest New Beginnings Church is located in Oswego, Illinois. We exist for God's glory alone, encouraging each other to have a deep love for God and a sincere love for people. This message is brought to you by a special guest. And welcome to all of you and those that are joining us online this morning as well. Uh, Cheryl and I consider this church one of our home churches. Uh, through the years, we've had a wonderful relationship here. Uh, we just thank you for the opportunity to be with you again this morning. Um, let's face it, whenever you invite a guest speaker, you take a risk. Can we just be honest? I mean, you, on the way to church, you can be wondering, well, what's, what's this going to be like? And, or who is this guy? And whatever. Well, there was this, there's a story of a, a church where one morning there was a guest speaker and as people were coming in, an older woman came in, distinguished looking woman, and um, she told the people that greeted her, I'd like to sit in the very front row. Now, most times, as you can see, uh, front rows aren't the first place people choose to sit. They tend to like to be back a little bit further. Well, on this particular morning, she said, I want to go to the front of the church. And he said, sure, okay, I'll, I'll walk you up there. And as an usher, he walked her up there. And uh, halfway up there, his conscience, it got to him. He, he said, ma'am, hold on a minute. I have to tell you something. I've heard this speaker before, and he's not that good. Um, in fact, he's boring, and he goes way beyond his allotted time. And uh, he laughs at his own jokes, and it's hard to follow him. I don't know if you want to be seated right in the front row. You might want to be further back so that you could leave if you need to. And she stiffened up and said, young man, do you know who I am? He said, no. He, she said, I am the speaker's mother. And he said, well, ma'am, do you know who I am? And she said, no. And he said, good. So um, always a little bit of a risk when you do that. Well, things are different, aren't they, <laughs> in this season, uh, sitting somewhat apart from each other and all the things we have to do. Well, I'm from North Dakota. I was born in North Dakota, and we've been practicing social distancing there since 1895, okay? If you've ever been out there, you know, it's a long way between people, uh, one place or another. So I'm at home with this. I hope you are as well. I want to ask an important question this morning that we all have to answer. Why does God allow problems into my life? Why does he allow certain problems into my life that don't seem to go away? Why does he allow problems that even become more painful as time passes? Why does he allow problems for which there isn't an apparent explanation. Doesn't seem like I deserve this. Doesn't seem like this should be happening at this season of my life. Why? If we're honest, we all ask those questions. We need to ask them. This morning, I want to encourage you with something. That though I don't have every answer, by any means, to why does God allow 
problems into my life or your life that are so unwelcome, so difficult to live with. I don't have every answer. It would be arrogant of me, foolish, to say I do. But that doesn't mean there aren't any answers. And there isn't anything that we can't take away from God's word that could bring us comfort. Doesn't mean there are no answers. Just doesn't mean we don't have all the answers. Not yet, at least. Well, I'll give you a spoiler alert at the beginning of this message. I want to tell you one reason God allows problems into our lives. That we might draw closer to Jesus. That we might draw closer to Jesus. I want you to keep that thought in mind as we look at a story from God's word that I want to read. Before we do, can we pray though? Our Heavenly Father, to approach such a serious subject that stirs so many emotions in all of us, oh, we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to speak to us through your inspired without error word. Do so that you might be glorified and that we might be encouraged and strengthened. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a story that's fascinating to me in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 6 through 15. It's a story I learned as a child growing up in the church. And if you did as well, you probably heard it many, many times. It's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. But as I have grown and my life has gone on, it has come to mean much, much more to me than just that Jesus could take some bread and multiply it and some fish and feed so many people. Let me read it to you, though. In John chapter 6, verse 6, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because, and this is important, they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. They were attracted to the miracles, not necessarily to Christ. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, which swelled the number of people coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So that day, not only did he have those normally interested in his ministry, he had thousands that just happened to be on their way to Jerusalem. And all these people come together at this moment for a very crucial incident for a very crucial uh, demonstration of who Christ is. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him and turning to Philip he asked where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip for he already knew what he was going to do. I want to say to you at home and to those of you who are here today here's an encouragement for us. No matter what problem you are facing, 
Jesus already knows what he's going to do. No matter whether this COVID crisis has cost you your job or you've seen your business plummet as a result, I talked to our, our dry cleaner that I frequent and he told me his business was down by 90% at the height of this. Many other people have lost jobs and income streams have just disappeared. Industries have shut down. But I want to encourage you this morning, just as with Philip, Jesus already knows what he's going to do for you. He already knows the answer to whatever it is you're facing. As Corey Tenboom, one of my favorite authors, used to say, there's no panic in heaven, only plans. There's no panic in heaven this morning, there's only plans. And I want you to keep that in mind as you face situations that can create anxiety for you and worry. There's no panic in heaven, there may be here. Some days there may be on Wall Street, but not in heaven. He turned to Philip and he asked him, what are we going to do to feed all these people? Well, Philip, being the pragmatist, uh, he, a uh, very practical sort of guy, very logical, he just started calculating the number of people. And by the way, with 5,000 men, and that's all that was counted, add the wives, add the children, and you're easily up to 20,000 people that are there. What are we going to do? Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Well, then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, Andrew, you remember, first brought Peter to Jesus to introduce them. Andrew was always introducing people to Jesus. I remember years ago, there was an evangelistic campaign in our city, and, and the title that they used for it was Operation Andrew, because we were all supposed to bring people to this who needed to meet Christ. Well, that's what Andrew does. He brings this small boy. And he spoke up. He said, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what good is that with this huge crowd? So Andrew had a little bit more faith. He brought this little boy in this lunch, but like uh, Philip, he's going, I, I don't know. This is pretty overwhelming. Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. In another of the gospel accounts, it says, have everybody sit down in groups of 50. Another encouragement I want to give to you this morning, in the middle of your trouble, your confusion, in your uncertainty, Jesus wants you to sit down on a grassy slope. He wants you to sit down in a place of rest. Not that you give up on life or quit doing what you need to do or quit working hard or pursuing, but in your spirit, in your heart, sit down and wait and rest because Jesus is taking over this situation. Jesus is in control, not us. And he had them sit in groups of 50. That speaks to me about how God wants to bring order out of our chaos. There, were, there was a mob there that day, 20,000 people, just swarming, hungry. And as we all, you've experienced, haven't you, on long trips when the kids are hungry, they get a little snarky. Or when you haven't eaten for a while and you get a lot of people together and uh, 
You could just imagine there was, there was some tension in the air. Jesus said, everybody sit down in groups of 50. And Jesus wants to bring order out of your chaos, out of my chaos. He wants to bring a sense that this is not out of control. This is not careening off the road. I've got this, is what he is saying. He took the loaves, gave thanks to God, distributed them to the people. O oh Lord God, King of the universe, that brings forth bread from the earth. A very common prayer. It's not in the text, but that's typically what was prayed. He takes the loaves and he lifts them toward heaven. He gave thanks to God, distributed them to the people. Afterwards, he did the same with the fish. And they all ate as much as they wanted. And after everyone was full, Jesus said, now gather the leftovers so nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. There was enough for everyone and then some. And when the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. That word prophet means a lot more than just another person like Ezekiel or Daniel or whatever. This was the Messiah. The word prophet and Messiah had become pretty much one and the same. The book of Deuteronomy had said, a prophet shall arise from among you who will shepherd my people. And, and they all knew that to be the Messiah. When Jesus saw they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Well, let me circle back. How do you see the problems in your life this morning? How do I see the problems in mine? How do you see the big problems in your life? It's so easy to give in to despair, to discouragement, to cynicism, to depression, to start using in order to cope with things. It's so easy to do that. But that's not what God would have us do. How do we see the big problems? I want to thank Adrian Rogers for his thoughts on this. He said this about this story. Number one, there is no problem too big for Jesus to solve. If you and I could just believe that. If we could just accept that this morning. Oh, how that would help, wouldn't it? There's not a problem too big for our Lord Jesus to solve. That day, the disciples were convinced this was a problem that not even Jesus could deal with. I mean, 20,000 people, no Grubhub, no DoorDash, nothing to deliver food. Uh, all we've got is a little sack lunch here with barley loaves, which was the coarsest of bread at that time, and a couple sardines, small fish that swam in the Sea of Galilee. That's it. That's all that anybody's got. This is too big. Both Andrew and Philip said nothing can be done. And we get to that point, don't we, friends? There's no way out. This time, it's over. Or this time, I'm on my own. And we become very discouraged. But there's no problem too big for Jesus to solve. Number two, there's no person too little for Jesus to use. <laughs> the hero of this story, besides our Lord, is the little boy who shows up with some food. 
It's the little boy God decides to use. Isn't that an encouragement? <laughs> Particularly to children, how precious they are, how God notices them and cares about them, how he can use even our little ones in the lives of people. There's no person too little, too insignificant this morning. And finally, there's no gift too small for Jesus to multiply. No gift too small. Nothing too simple, too plain, too ordinary, too insignificant for God to use. When you put it in the hands of Jesus, ordinary becomes extraordinary pretty quickly, doesn't it? I remember when Cheryl and I began the ministry years ago, our first church was in Minneapolis. First time I was a pastor all on my own. I was, I think, 26 or thereabouts when we took this church. We were in a very difficult community. It was the second highest crime precinct in the city at the time. And the church was out of money. Uh, they, when we approached them, and, and we were expecting our first child, all of this kind of came together at once. We didn't have a job. Cheryl's expecting. The only church that's interested is broke. And they said, we have enough money in the bank to pay you three months, and then you're done. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's one of the shortest calls anybody's ever gotten. I mean, I've gotten wrong numbers that were longer calls than that. They were just, we're going to give you three months, and then, you know, you're on your own again. Well, we took the job anyway by faith, uh, and somehow we made it through that first year. But people were coming to our door. We were only a church about 50, asking for food, asking for diapers, asking for help with this or that. There were a large number of single mothers in that area, and the, um, it, was, it was just a hard-hit area economically in many ways, and we had so little to give. As a church, we were not in a position, and we just had to pray and say, Lord, we want to help people. We want to feed people. We want to show people's love. Well, uh, the first gift, the first way God ever answered that is he sent us a truckload of potatoes. A farmer had heard about us, and someone connected us, and they, they dumped a truckload of potatoes <laughs> in our driveway. That was the beginning of our ministry, you know, it was just this potatoes. I didn't know what to do, so I put them in the garage. It was August. And about two weeks later, I opened the door and it started to smell. It started to smell pretty bad. Those of you from the country can know where this is going. You know. These were rotting in the humidity and the heat of August. And soon this, this stuff was drooling underneath the garage door. Well, there was liquid coming down our driveway. I was the only pastor in that city making vodka in his garage, okay? I'm pretty sure of that. That's how we started. Well, I want to move this story along. Uh, from there, our food pantry became a food bank. We got connected, and miracles happened over uh, five years, four years. One of the things we did was to start a Thanksgiving dinner for the community, a free Thanksgiving dinner. And, uh, oh, we had a couple hundred people show up for that. And every year it became a tradition that uh, we really enjoyed. Well, I remember one year, it was Minnesota. It was Thanksgiving weekend. It was a Wednesday. 
And I'm in my office door, and I hear a, there's a knock on my door, and I go out to the, to the street, and there's a couple delivery guys, big burly guys, and they've got this uh, chest freezer on a dolly. And they go, uh, we have your freezer, sir, please sign for it. I think they were from Sears or somewhere. I go, we didn't order a dolly, we didn't order a freezer. We don't have money for a freezer. No, you got the wrong address. He looks at it, he goes, no, there's a freezer. It's been paid for. Now move out of my way. <laughs> so I go, all right. I, and they wheeled in this chest freezer, sat it down in a room and had me sign. And I had no idea where this came from. Like, where did this freezer show up? Well, that afternoon, the weather said that a blizzard was coming. And it was coming directly toward the city and was going to arrive by the late afternoon. And sure enough, the clouds darkened, the wind picked up, and began to snow. It snows a lot in Minnesota. There's only two seasons, winter and poor sledding, okay? We go back and forth between the two. Well, winter comes in. The ladies who had been fixing turkey for hundreds of people come up and say, Pastor, what are we going to do? Because we had to cancel because of the blizzard. It wasn't safe. And all this food was going to go to waste. Everything that we had cooked. We we're going to have to cancel the whole community event. It was a disaster. What are we going to And um, we all just stood there in the basement thinking, what are we going to do? And someone said, Pastor, didn't a freezer arrive this morning? I said, yeah, it did. It's upstairs. They go, well, why don't we plug it in? And uh, we'll wrap everything in aluminum foil, and we think we can save virtually everything. I said, let's do it. And we packed it all. We got it in the freezer and then went home because a blizzard came that shut down the city for three days. But when it was over, a week later, we had our celebration. And we served all that food. Now, I'm telling you, friends, how did a freezer arrive that morning that we hadn't ordered, that we didn't know where it came from, but it saved all that food, and we were able to feed the community? We later learned it was a sister church in our denomination, but we had never asked for it. They never told us they were sending it. You see, nothing is too small in God's eyes. He knows what you're facing. He's seldom early, but he's never late. The Bible says this about the Christ that we serve, the same Jesus who broke bread that day. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created. He is supreme over all creation. For through him, for through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. It says Jesus has made everything in this universe. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, ruler, authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. He holds all of creation together. That's the Jesus that you're bringing your problem to who is supreme over this creation. I want to show something here on the uh, screen. Because it says Jesus created the universe, I was, I was interested, how many galaxies are there? 
I googled that question. Here's the answer. All in all, the Hubble telescope reveals an estimated 100 billion galaxies in the universe or so. But this number is likely to increase to about 200 billion as telescope technology in space improves. I'd like to show you a picture, if I can. I want to read this. I, I took this. This is picture taken by the Hubble telescope. The image of the core of the nearby spiral galaxy M51 taken with the wide-field planetarium camera on NASA's Hubble Space Telescope shows a striking dark cross silhouetted across the galaxy's nucleus. The size of the image, are you ready for this, is 1,100 light years wide. It's 1,100 light years the size of this in a galaxy <laughs> far away. Jesus leaves his calling card. It's called the cross of Hubble. See, this is the Jesus that we serve. So how can I turn my problems over to Jesus this morning? Well, let me give you some principles from this story. Number one, offer him what you have. Offer him what you're facing. Say, Jesus, this is the situation. This is what I have. This is what I need. This is what I'm facing. I'd like to offer it to you. The Bible says, are you weary and heavy laden? Jesus said you can bring these things to him. Cast all your cares on him. He cares for you. Number two, allow him to take it out of your hands. That day, the boy offered him his lunch. Jesus took it. And this may be a, a step of faith, hard for us sometimes to comprehend or believe. But when we offer our problems, our crisis, our worries, our fears, our broken heart, Jesus is willing to take it. He doesn't say, nah, you did this. You live with it. Uh, this was your fault, or you could have done better. You should have known. No, he doesn't say any of that. He takes it. He says, here, give it to me. Number three, he asks us to wait. He told everybody to sit down on those green slopes, grassy slopes. It reminds me of Psalm 23. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Remember, he's not saying don't do anything, become passive, become indolent, lazy, whatever. No, he's saying wait, rest, sit down as I deal with this. And then he lifts it up before our Heavenly Father. Like those loaves, he takes your problem this morning. If you'll give it to him, if you'll put it into his hands, he'll take it. And then like the bread, he lifts it up before God. And God cannot deny him. We then witness his power to transform our situation. His power is then released as he brings it before God. His power to transform is now at work. And the end result is that we draw closer to Jesus in a more real way. 
Uh, Nancy Guthrie was a woman who wrote a remarkable book. I can't commend it enough to you. It's called Holding On to Hope, A Pathway Through Suffering to the Heart of God. Holding On to Hope. Uh, her and her husband, their first child, was a girl they named Hope. But they discovered after she was born, she had something called Zellweger syndrome, a genetic disorder where the cells lacked the ability to rid themselves of toxins. As a result, the body slowly shuts down over a six-month period of time. No babies live beyond six months. She named her Hope, and six months later after her birth, she passed into the arms of our Lord. Sometime later, her and her husband found they were expecting again. This time it was a boy. But tragically, tests revealed he had the same syndrome as his, the earlier daughter. And he was only expected to live six months. And he did. As a result of her painful journey, she wrote this powerful book on suffering. It looks at the book of Job called Holding On to Hope. In one of the last chapters, she writes this, and I want to read it to you. You're probably wondering if all your suffering has been worth what it cost you. There's only one thing that could make it worth it for you. It is the one thing I'm counting on as I say yes to the suffering God has allowed and is allowing into my life. The same thing that made it worth it for Job. And it is uniquely through suffering, and listen to this, that we find our way to the very heart of God. In fact, there is no other pathway that can take us there. It is when we are hurting the most, we run to God. We recognize that we are powerless, that he is powerful. We pray and see him more clearly because we are desperately looking for him. And in our looking for him, we find him to be more loving and faithful than we've ever seen him before. We discover an intimacy we have never experienced before, perhaps because we are looking at him so intently. This is always God's purpose, to use whatever means he sees fit to bring us into a closer relationship with him, to create in us a faith that will give us the strength to keep holding on to hope. Not a flimsy wishing or a hope that everything will be fixed in this life, but genuine biblical hope that one day what is unseen will be seen. This is a faith in a confidence in an eternal future in which God sets everything right. To truly discover the heart of God, we need only to look up from our circumstances to the cross. It is there as we gaze upon our suffering Savior that we see the Father's heart, a loving Father who did not spare even his own Son but gave him up for us all, Romans 8.32. As we gaze upon the cross and its enormous suffering it represents on our behalf, we recognize not only does God understand our suffering, but he chose to suffer himself so that he might draw us to himself. Christ also suffered when he died for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners that he might bring us safely home to God, 1 Peter 3.18. She finishes by saying this, God wants to use difficulties in your life, not to punish you or hurt you, but to draw you to himself. Will you come? So when is Jesus going to resolve my problem? Very quickly, 
might be right now or soon. Daniel in the lion's den was delivered that night. Some of you will be delivered from your problem or heartache right away. Number two, it might be later on. There might be a period of time. Joseph was 13 years a slave in Egypt before God delivered him. But deliver him he did. Or he might answer our problem in heaven. All of us have prayed for people that they might be healed, that they might be restored, and that did not happen here. But it most certainly happened in heaven. Sometimes the answer is heaven. What mistakes should we avoid? Well, that day the people wanted to make him king. There's some pitfalls when we pray for God to please answer our problem. We demand that God solve our problem my way rather than his. That's maybe the most frequent one. God, I want you to do what I want you to do. Now do it. Where he may have a different answer in mind. Number two, we may misinterpret the purpose of God resolving our problems. Oh, he wants, they thought this was so that he could be their king and rid them of the Romans and feed them bread every day like man in the wilderness. No. It was so Jesus could show them he was the bread of life. We may try and manipulate God for our own purposes. That's another problem. Why does God allow problems into my life? To draw us closer to Jesus. To show us that our deepest hunger is for the bread of life. That is fed to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some final questions that you can take to apply this message to your life. Number one, what problem do I believe is too big even for God to solve? Today, just ask yourself honestly, what problem do I think is too big for God to resolve? Number two, what problem have I only surrendered halfway? That's another temptation. I give it to you, but not all of it. <laughs> or I give it to you and I take it back. Some days I'm good. Some days it's yours, Lord. But some days I panic and I think it's all up to me again. Number three, what valuable lessons am I learning in my pain and suffering? Friends, I'll tell you this. This is what I've discovered. God allows problems in my life as long as it will take in that problem to draw me closer to Jesus and when I have been drawn to him as close as he wants me, that's when he solves it. Because in solving it now, that will draw me closer to Jesus. The solution will draw me closer than the problem did. But sometimes the problem is what God is using, which is why he doesn't solve it. Because we still aren't where he desires us to be. Number four, will I submit to God's plan even if I don't understand it? Oh, that's a big question. Or let's take it a little bit further. Will I submit in, in, to God's plan and say, thy will be done, not mine, even if I don't agree with the plan? <laughs> even if I don't like the plan, will I agree to it and submit? And finally, how will I be closer to Jesus when all this is over? How will this have changed me? How will I know that Jesus is the bread of life that I hunger for, my deepest hunger? 
my deepest need? How will God have changed me through this? Why does God allow problems into our life? Reasons we know, reasons we don't. But this must is certain. He wants to draw you to himself. Will you let him? May God bless you. If you've been prompted by this message and are in need of a new beginning or would like more information about Harvest New Beginnings, visit at harvest.church.